millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Join us as we journey into the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin and how did they end? Let's find out on The Fan of History, episode 18, the 870s BC, The Lord of Massacres Continues. Last time, Ashurnapal II, chosen of Asher, king of Assyria, beat all of his enemies in the neighborhood massacring them horribly, very unique ways. So, does he turn a new leaf, Dan? Does he become a a cuddly, kinder king? Uh, Relatively speaking, uh, yes, for a short while. Wow. Because in 875 to 873 BC, Ashurnasupal takes a break from yearly campaigning. the dating of the years is not 100% certain. It's quite unclear in the descriptions. Hmm. But in these three years, he uh, checks on the building projects. His capital is still being built. Sure. He installs governors over the conquered areas. They are eunuchs to prevent uh, hereditary governorships. Right. And this principle will slowly disappear after Ashurnasupal dies, and that will lead to problems later. But the tributes for everybody who's paying tribute to the Syrians, trying to avoid these yearly campaigns, they are very heavy, so people tend to rebel if they can, but nobody does so in these three years. Uh, And the army is restless. You have this battle-hardened army. They've seen all these massacres, they've won all these wars, and if you possess an army like this, which is the highest religious fun anyone can have <laughs> to be in the army. <laughs> right. you, you really have to use it. But for these three years, uh, the army is not used. Uh, so we have to look at other places in the world for 875 to 873, and we have some events we know of. Sure. In 874 BC, China strikes back at the Western Rong barbarians. And there's a non-Joe nobleman called Ku Kong who comes down to us in the sources. He captures 1,000 horses of the barbarians. Take that, Western Rong! <laughs> we got your horses. <laughs> Just 1,000 seems like a very small number, but uh, yeah. that's, that's what they say. Hey. 
Own it. <laughs> also in 874 BC, Israel has its first succession. So Omri dies. He ruled Israel from 884 to 874. And his son Ahab becomes the king of Israel. Uh, the dating of the Israeli kings are um, uh, uncertain at best. But we know that the king of Tyre, Ithobald I, marries his daughter to Ahab. And there's a strong Phoenician influence over Israel. Uh, this daughter then is Jezebel. Mm -hmm. And she is, uh, her father was a priest of Astarte before he became the king of Tyre. And he, she is very much a Phoenician. So she helps the uh, temples to the Phoenician de deities in Israel. And there's a lot of Baal worship going on in Israel. And whenever you come to these questions about religion in Israel, it's so colored because it still affects events in the world today. Right. So please uh, don't flame us. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and everything is written down during the Babylonian captivity, which is in the 6th century BC. So uh, these people are very influenced by their religious agenda. And so it's hard to tell what really happened. But there seem to be Yahweh worshippers who are into monotheism. Mm -hmm. But my impression is that there is really no true monotheism in Israel at this time. But even Yahweh worshippers also have other deities. Uh, but they are definitely not happy with the heavy Phoenician influence and the worship of Baal. There are two Baskill prophets going around in Israel at this time, Elijah and Mikala. And they uh, sort of speak that, uh, they say that, uh, oh, the Lord will come down on Israel and uh, be very angry with us because we are doing this hanging right. and worshiping Baal. And uh, maybe he will. Uh, okay, in uh, Egypt, in 872 BC, Takelot I died, and he ruled half of Egypt from 885 to 872 BC. And he succeeded by his son, Osorkon II. He is also poorly documented, and a pharaoh of the 22nd dynasty. But he seems to be a little stronger than his father, and he even, th this is very contested, but he might be looking out from Egypt for once. The Egyptians are very internal in their politics. Right. But there are indications that Osorkon II is worried about the rise of Assyria far to the north. And that he will actually take action against Assyria. And we'll get back to that when we talk about the great battle of Karkar. Because yes, we are coming closer to a battle so big that the world has never seen a battle of this size. The great battle of Karkar, but that's 853 BC. So, yeah, stay tuned for that. Little ways to go, but yeah. Uh, Harsiasa is still ruling the other half of Egypt, the southern half from Thebes. And there's also an extremely high flood of the Nile this year, which has been noted in the sources. Uh, in, in the temple at Luxor, the floors are flooded, which is an exceptional event and taken as a, 
as a bad sign from the gods because the gods have flooded their own temples. That's that's probably not good. <laughs> I have to mention the uh, uh, backwater of the world, Europe. <laughs> for once, uh, there are still the Villanovans uh, going on in northern Italy. Greece is still in the Dark Age. And the Phoenicians are in Spain and probably some other places of the Mediterranean. I actually read this week the reason why the Phoenicians set up their first colony in Spain. And uh, it's, uh, it's of course about the uh, iron ore, but there was also like a, a non-Phoenician trading hub in Spain that they wanted access to. And these people in Spain traded as far as uh, Britain. So there is tin coming in from Britain that right. the Phoenicians wanted access to. Hmm. Um, so. There is also uh, trading going on in um, along the Amber Road in Europe. And the Amber Road is... You, you heard of the Silk Road, probably? Oh, yeah. But this road goes up to the Baltic Sea. Hey, that's my neighborhood. Hey. Look at that. And it is... It has been around since 1600 BC. And the main reason for this road is amber from the Baltic. And you actually find Baltic amber on the breast ornament of Tutankhamun himself. That is a long, long way. I, I am always impressed when I hear about this long distance trading things happening in this very primitive world. I mean, that's, it's incredible. It would have taken years yes. for that to have traveled that far. That's amazing. And, uh, of course, uh, the Nordic countries are still in their Bronze Age, and they don't have iron at this point, but they are influenced by this amber trade uh, going up the Silk Road, pretty much from Italy in a straight line up to the Baltic. And uh, we know very little about what the people in uh, Sweden are doing at this time, but they, they are around. <laughs> they are influenced by this amber trade. Uh, Greece is slowly coming out of the Dark Age. And Greece will be so important for our story that we will spend an episode, uh, episode 20, no, 19, the next episode. Next episode. Yeah, we'll talk about what Greek, uh, Greece is like at this time uh, and about what the Dark Age collapse uh, meant for um, uh, Greece. All right, it's time, Brennan. Uh-oh. Ashurnasipal II is going to war in 872 BC. Yeah. What's happening uh, now? Yeah. He is going to try to march to the Mediterranean with the Assyrian royal army. And his first destination is Carchemish, still ruled by Sangara. Remember, they submitted last time. Right. And when the Assyrians show up this time, they are ready with troops and supplies. And they're like, oh, great Assyrian king, good luck! <laughs> <laughs> and Bittadini, this... Uh, troublesome uh, Aramean tribe. They are also paying tribute. Everybody is sending their well wishes and the tribute and like, oh, please, great Assyrian king, go somewhere else. Right. So, Ashurnasipal II marches. He goes uh, 
straight towards the uh, Mediterranean. He comes to Lebanon, and Lebanon is famous for their uh, cedar trees. Is that how you say it in English? Cedar, yeah. Yeah. The great cedar trees, which the Egyptians have used for building ships for a long time. And from beneath these cedars, an Assyrian king once again looks out over the Mediterranean. And even Sargon the Great, back in the third millennium BC, did this march to the Mediterranean. And when he came here, it was a very sparsely populated area. But now it's, there's a lot of people. And they all just bow to the Assyrian king. They just throw themselves on the ground, pay tribute. And then he stands outside the Phoenician <laughs> city-states. These, these Phoenician city-states have been doing great since the Bronze Age collapse. Uh, the, the great empires that uh, submitted them, the Egyptians, the Hittites, they're gone. And the Phoenicians have been having their golden age. But this golden age... Uh, ends around here, and maybe this very event is the end of the Phoenician Golden Age. So uh, uh, let's hear it from Ashenasipal II about his encounter with the Phoenicians. The tribute of the seacoast from the inhabitants of Tyr, Sidon, Byblos, Mahalata, Kaziza, Amuru, and Arvad, which is an island in the sea consisting of gold, silver, tin, copper, copper containers, linen garments with multicolored trimming, large and small monkeys, ebony, boxwood, ivory from walrus tusk, a product of the sea. This is their tribute I received, and they embraced my feet. So this is the actual propaganda that comes down to us, written by the scribes of Ashenazib II, because he was illiterate. He could not read or write. And uh, <laughs> especially like the large and small monkeys part. Yeah. <laughs> they had to empty their zoos to yeah, please Ashenazib II. He, they wanted to make sure, hey man, we got monkeys, but no, no, no. You got some pocket monkeys. We got some riding monkeys. We got monkeys of all shapes and sizes. And Ashenazibal II goes to himself, Wow, I really have more monkeys than any <laughs> other Assyrian king before me. Hell I'm yeah. Be great. Uh, my, 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 my favorite part of that is the first part where he talks about garments with multicolored trimming. Like he himself is trying to sell this. And yes. then... The ivory from walrus tusks, which is a product of the sea. Let's let's get that out there right now. <laughs> yeah, the, the sea is a very strange and mysterious thing to the Assyrians. And you will find that when it comes to naval warfare, the Assyrians are not proficient at all. So they, they are actually no threat whatsoever if you have <laughs> if you are on the sea. And that's one reason the Phoenicians uh, survive, because they are going to need the Phoenician navy later. Right. Uh, and whenever there is actual naval warfare, the Phoenicians are involved on the Assyrian side. Hmm. Uh, so Paul II comes to the Mediterranean. He dips his sword in the sea like the kings of old. And uh, here he summarizes this entire mission 
with the support of the god Ashur, my lord, I kept marching along difficult routes and over rugged mountains with the mass of my troops, and there was no equal to me. And this might actually be the point where the Middle Assyrian Empire is reclaimed. And now Ashurnasirbal II has to really think hard about what to do next. But it is sort of lost in the sources that this was their goal. Because it was very important to his grandfather, but now he has other concerns. Uh, but we will leave the Assyrians for one episode. We'll talk about the Greeks next time. And in the episode after that, I feel that we have to go in, uh, go into detail and discuss exactly what this Neo-Assyrian army looks like. Because this is the best army in the world in the 870s BC. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in depth and try to figure out why it is so good compared to the other armies. Because hmm. uh, we have to do that at some point before the great battle of Karkar in 853 BC. And we'll do that in episode 20. Gotcha. All right, folks. In the next episode, we are going to look at what's going on in Greece, like Dan mentioned earlier. Then, later on, like you just mentioned, uh, we're going to take a look at the, Neo- the army of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Please visit us on YouTube, um, youtube.com slash fan of history. Subscribe and like and share with your friends. Give us a review on iTunes. Also, Facebook slash fan of history. Twitter is at the fan of history. And the website is thefanofhistory.wordpress.com. Thank you for listening. Sparta! Sparta. Indeed. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time.